Well, good morning, church family. Um, this is my first time uh, preaching during quarantine time, and uh, I hope it will be my last because next week we do a soft opening. Um, I thrive on being able to look at you, uh, look at the people I'm teaching. Um, I just kind of feed off of uh, you looking and just connecting with you. And here we're in an empty sanctuary and so uh, Victor was saying, was praying that I could look into the camera and pretend that I'm seeing you. <laughs> and so we will pray for that. Uh, a lot, we will pray for that. Um, as Rocky prayed, there's so much unrest happening right now. And uh, especially during this time of quarantine, the way that we see the world is coming through strictly through the television or through the internet or through social media. And their interpretation and the news that they're giving us is not created to bring about peace in us. It's not created to turn us to the Lord. It's, it's created to, to cause uh, anxiety, to get attention. And so it is a very specific viewpoint of this world and a, and a very specific narrative. And so I just wanna come before the Lord really quickly before uh, I start and just ask that the message that I have prepared that's coming from his word, that it would somehow apply very uniquely to our situation. Um, even though at this moment, I don't see how it does, we'll pray that he meets us though, all right? So let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. And God, we wanna pray, Lord, just for our nation. And we wanna pray for those, Lord, who are angry and who are acting out violently. We wanna pray, Lord, for just the injustice that has happened in the past and that maybe was never addressed in our country. And it has in some ways, but in other ways it has not. And we just ask, Lord, that your church, your people, by the interactions of people together, loving each other as you have loved us, that you would bring about a healing and you would bring about a hope. And so, Lord, we look to you now. We look to you now. Help us, God. Help us. Jesus, help us. Thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I don't know how close the camera is, but uh, I haven't gotten a haircut since the beginning of March. Um, I refused to get a haircut because there's this one place by my house. It's a little uh, Chinese owner and she's been cutting my hair for the last, well not her, actually anyone who's available cuts my hair. And right when they open, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna get my hair cut. Uh, and so until then, it's gonna be gloriously long. Okay, we're, gonna, we're still in John here and uh, so I'm gonna just read the passage. It's verses 16 to 30. We've come to the very end of Jesus's life. And so if you can stand or if you'd like to stand, please do that. If you have your Bibles, 
that will also be on the screen. I'm going to start with John chapter 19 verse, with verse 16. At this point, Pilate has finally handed over Jesus to the religious leaders to be crucified. And so here we go, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In other words, no. So, the, so when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took, took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we finally come to the end of Jesus' life. And as we have traveled through John, you see that John, as he recounts Jesus' journey to the cross, he keeps reminding the reader that Jesus' crucifixion was not a series of tragic events. Right? It, was, it did not catch Jesus by surprise. He was not disoriented but rather he, his journey to the cross was the unfolding of God's perfect will for him. And what we see in this passage again is that John does this, he lets you know that this is not an accident by not just writing what Jesus says, but also letting you know what he's thinking, what he knows. And so we see this happen in verse 28 where Jesus on the cross 
in pain, in agony, dying and struggling for breath. He says, though, knowing that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he still understood what was happening. And John does this throughout this uh, journey to the cross. The other place he does is in John 13. In John 13, verses 1 to 4, says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, he knew this hour had come. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, this is what he writes, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was going back, he rose from supper and he went to wash the disciples' feet. John does it again in the Garden of Gethsemane, all right, before Jesus is arrested. John writes in John 18, 4, says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, how does John know what Jesus is thinking? How does he know what's going through his mind? Well, either he's inspired by the Spirit as he's writing this, or when Jesus was resurrected, maybe they're talking about it. Maybe they're recounting what happened. And Jesus actually tells him, right? Because how else would he know his thoughts? So either inspiration of the Spirit or maybe actually dialogue with Jesus. I knew this was happening. And at this moment, I did this. Whatever it is, J- John telling us what Jesus is thinking assures us. It, it communicates to us that Jesus knows what is happening. He's not caught off guard. He's not disillusioned. He's not confused. He knows. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And he actually told his disciples this, right? Uh, Just one instance in Mark, Mark 8, verses 31 to 32. says, Jesus, he tells his disciples that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and be killed, right? And on the third day, he's going to rise. And he tells his disciples this. And not just once, but the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, recorded three times. And those are just the three times they recorded. And he says that he tells them plainly what's going to happen to him. So Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. And he tells the disciples. And yet, when Jesus is finally crucified, he says, all indication when we read this, the Gospels, the disciples are shocked. They're dismayed. They're confused. They are the ones who are disillusioned. And why is that? Why don't the disciples remember what Jesus said? And the only reason why they don't remember what he said is because that's not what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to reign. They did not want him to die. And when you think about that, for ourselves, we're the same way. We do not listen well to what we do not want. If we want, say, um, 
to go to a particular restaurant. Maybe we're asking the family, hey, where do you want to go to eat? But we know where we want to go to eat. Someone might say, well, how about Taco Bell? Uh, I don't really feel like fast food. Let's say you actually want to go to uh, Kaiba. I like to go to Kaiba. Let's say you, then they might say, well, well, what about, I don't know. Um, I don't go out to eat that much, so I don't know many restaurants. Another restaurant, like, no, no, I feel like Japanese food, right? And essentially, you know what you want, and so whatever information you're getting, it's kind of like, I want this. And, that, and that's true for everything. When we want something, when we want, our, when we want to date a certain person, and, and our friends are telling us, that's not a good person to date. The combination of you and just the way this person is, or they're not even a believer, right? When we want something, even when we get wise counsel, we don't listen to it. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. The disciples simply did not want Jesus to be killed. They wanted him to reign. And so only Jesus knows the Father's will. Only Jesus is in fellowship and is willing to do what God wants him to do. And so why is that? Well, it's because it's what I just said. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. When you look at Jesus, he says this. When he describes himself all right, in John 5, 19, this is not um, one of the verses on the screen, but in John 19, 5, 19, Jesus says of himself this, that the Son can do nothing, all right, he uses extremes here, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He can do nothing of his own will, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus was trying to communicate that his desire is to do the will of God. He's not a puppet. So when he says that I can't do anything, I have to do what God does because he controls me like a puppet. No, Jesus had free will. But he's just describing how much he desires to do that which the Father wants him to do. And you might think, well, how, how does that work? How does it work so that, you know, every decision I make, every, every thing I want to do, I'm just always asking, you know, Lord, what do you want me, what should I do, Father? And he tells you, well, no, it wouldn't work like that. It would probably work like your long-term friendships work and that at first when you start to get to know someone, you ask them, well, you know, what do you like to do? And you start to get to know their personality. But when you get to know them, you get to understand what they like, what they value what they'll choose. And this is probably how it worked with Jesus and the Father. As a young man, we believed he was, a, he, he, he was human. He had to learn about the Father. He would read the scriptures. He would commune with the Father. And as at the beginning, beginning to talk with him, the Father taught him. And the unity grew more and more, and he knew what the heart of the Father was. Another way that Jesus describes his desire, all right, to do the Father's will is in John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, after ministering to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus' disciples bring him food and urge him to eat. All right? And Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And this is what he says in verse 34 of John, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish or to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, finish his work. For Jesus, doing the Father's will was as necessary as eating. As necessary as eating. That's what he's saying here. Now, when I don't eat, I get hungry and I get angry. I get hangry, right? And uh, I, need, I need to eat. I need to drink. Right? It sustains me. Well, for Jesus, food definitely, he needed to sustain his physical life. He needed to eat. But even as much as eating physical food, he needed to follow the will of the Father. He needed to yield himself and do the good Father's desires. He needed to please him. And in doing so, it sustained his life with the Father. His communion with the Father, what he would call eternal life. And that is what eternal life is. It is communion with the Father. It's knowing him. It's doing his bidding. And that is what Jesus did. And just as we find uh, joy in eating food, right? You go to your favorite uh, place to eat and like you're excited. Maybe you go to your favorite taco stand. You can take favorite fish taco place, El Taco Nazo, and you get it and you eat it and you're happy and it brings you joy, you know, sort of like that. So just as eating food, you know, brings many of us joy, so doing God's will brought Jesus the greatest joy. It was the source of his joy. In John 15, this one will be on, your, on the, uh, the screen. This is, again, Jesus' dialogue before this whole series of events. He tells his disciples this, starting with verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. All right? If you do my will. That's what he means when he says, if you keep my commandments, if you do what I desire, you're going to abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abide in me. So listen, follow my will. You're going to abide in my love because I follow my Father's will and abide in his love. Now listen, verse 12, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy and the pleasure that Jesus felt was being in communion with the Father, walking with him, doing his work, loving his people, speaking his truth, magnifying God on earth. And not only is that Jesus' greatest joy, it is actually humanity's greatest joy. It is actually your, your greatest joy and mine. When we were originally created, we were created in the image of God, and we were created to carry out the very will of the Father. 
We are created to glorify him on earth, to do his bidding. But now in sin, that, that it's completely different. We think that if we do our will, in our way, we will receive joy. But I think many of you, the reason why, I was going to say the reason why you're sitting in the sanctuary, but you're not here, the reason why you believe and you're watching the screen and you love Christ is because you know that when you do it your own way, it does not lead to life. And it has left you not in life, but dying. And that is probably the very reason why you come to Christ. Because you know my way is not the way of joy. I need a new way. Now this is just critical to know. Jesus lived the life that humanity was meant to live. It's what we were created for. When we look at Jesus, we, we not only see God the Father. He didn't just come to reveal. I mean, that's a major thing. He came to reveal who the Father was. But in Jesus, we also see what humanity was created to be into. We see in Jesus true humanity. And that's what makes him so beautiful to us. We long to be like him. For he is what we were created to be. We were created to glorify God on earth and to carry out his will. And that would, be that, and that would bring us the greatest joy. We were to trust in what he determined was good and evil. And to live in trusting obedience to that. And see, that's what original sin is about, right? Adam and Eve... That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about. As long as Adam and Eve right, did not eat from that tree, what they were saying is that I trust you, my God. I trust you, my creator. You know what is best. I desire to do your will. But by eating of that tree, he was, they were saying, I do not trust you. I do not trust you. I'm actually suspicious of you. I actually believe that I know, in my puny and little perspective, I know better. And that was the greatest, and that was the beginning, and that is the heart of sin. It is going our own way, doing our own thing. And so Jesus, though, he follows God's good and perfect will and it leads him to his death. It leads him to the cross. And although going to the cross and dying didn't make any sense to his disciples and to those who loved him, again, it made complete sense to Jesus because he knew the Father. He was following his will. And again, in John 19, Verse 28, and it says, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they gave him the sour wine. After he had received it, he said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He knew what was happening. And as Victor said in the children's message, that Greek word finished, it just doesn't mean that something has ended, right? Jesus wasn't saying, it's the end, goodbye, right? No, that, that's not. That would be very insignificant to say that. But this verb actually means the completion of a goal, right? The fulfillment of a purpose. And so in the ESV version that I just read, in verse 28, it says, knowing that all was now finished, and then in verse 30, when he says finished, it's the exact same verb, and it's actually the exact same tense in everything, right? But NASB Bible, in verse 28, they translate that word finished to accomplish. This is what, in the NASB, verse 28 says this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, that on the cross, in his, at the point of his greatest weakness, and surrender to the will of God, God accomplishes the work that Jesus submitted to him to do. And so you could read it like this, verses 28 to 30, that Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, that he said he, was, that he thirsted, he was given sour wine, and then he said, it has been accomplished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his life for us. And the disciples, they probably looked on and they're thinking to themselves, what was accomplished by having our righteous, good, our loving, and our humble Lord killed? What was accomplished in that? What was accomplished by such a horrific act of injustice? But Jesus, breathing his last breath, knew what was accomplished. He knew that what was accomplished was an outrageous act of lavish forgiveness and mercy. What was done on the cross was that he, the one who lived in complete trust and obedience to the Father's will, that he was being condemned on behalf of those who lived in total disregard and even disdain for the Father, and that he was willingly doing this. He was giving up his good life on behalf of you and I. What was happening on the cross was that he who honored and cherished God. He was taking the blame and the punishment for us who did not honor him, for all those, the multitudes who would not honor him, who would have disregard for him. He was taking the punishment and the blame, and he was opening the door. He was opening the door for thousands, for millions, I hope, to come. Multitudes, the Bible says, Multitudes of rebellious, arrogant, self-absorbed, lazy, fearful, weak. He opened the door for them to come back. He opened the door for us to come back, no matter what we have done, and no matter where we have been, and no matter what has been done to us, he has opened the door for us to come back 
and to know the joy of living with the Father and the joy of being able to do His will. In Romans chapter 5, Paul just describes this is what has happened, (laughs) describes what's happened on the cross in this way. In Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, the trespass of Adam led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus's fulfilling of God's will, yielding perfectly to his will, living the way in which man was created to live. This one act of righteousness leads to justification, the acquittal and forgiveness of sins, justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made disobedient. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. Christ's righteousness was that he yielded completely to the Father's will, that he honored the Father. And so by his obedience, it says, many will be made righteous. Many will be forgiven. They'll be declared righteous because he took our place. In 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter writes it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, that we might die to disobedience, to following our own way, and that we might live to righteousness, that we might live a life that pleases God and seeks his will. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. This is what was accomplished on the cross. And because Jesus finished the work of following the Father's will all the way to the end, he has opened the door for you and I to do the same. All of our wrongs, our weaknesses, our failures, our addictions and slavery to sins has been forgiven by the death of Christ. And not only forgiven, but we've been freed We've been freed to live for him and to do his will. We were free to glorify him, to love like him. In our failures to do that, we have the assurance that he has paid our price, that he is for us and that we're forgiven. There's a passage I memorized again when I was uh, uh, in high school. And it's my life verse. It's 2 Corinthians 5.15. And it says this, and he died for all. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died 
and rose again on their behalf. What a blessing, what a privilege. Christ has opened the door for us to come back, to be forgiven of our waywardness, and now to receive his spirit so that we might now live the life that he created us to live, to glorify him, to make his name known on this earth. It is so critical that we know the will of the Father, and especially in these days. There is so, I mean, especially now, when I think of what, what do I do, or what can I do in the climate that we are in now regarding just um, the conflict between, I mean, this racial conflict, I'm truly at a loss. And yet God will guide us. He says that he will lead us. And so especially in this time, we need to know his will, just as Jesus knew his will, and follow it all the way to the very end of our life. And it will bless Others is Christ's death opened the door and blessed and fulfilled and just gave us new life. So let's come before the Lord in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you for your, your commitment to love the Father and to love us to follow the Father's will all the way to the very end. Lord, and open a door for new life and forgiveness for all mankind who would believe you. Father, we praise you. We worship you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.